Chapter Eleven of Murder at Bridge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Murder at Bridge by Anne Austen. Chapter Eleven. You are damned impertinent, sir. Judge Marshall shouted, the ends of his waxed gray mustache trembling with anger. Then I take it that you do not wish to divulge the circumstances of your friendship with Mrs. Selim. Friendship, the old man snorted. Your implications, sir, are dastardly. I met Mrs. Selim, or rather, Nita Lee, as she was introduced to me, only once, several years ago, when I was in New York. Naturally, just a moment, judge. You say she was introduced to you as Nita Lee. Then you knew her as an actress, I presume? I refuse to submit to such a cowardly attack, sir. Attack, judge? Dundee repeated with assumed astonishment. I merely thought you might be able to shed a little light on the past of the woman who has been murdered here today, with a weapon you admit to having owned. However, the elderly ex-judge stared at his tormentor for a moment as if murder was in his heart. He gasped twice, then suddenly his whole manner changed. I apologize, Dundee. You must realize how, but that is beside the point. I met Nita Lee at, uh, a social gathering, arranged by some New York friends of mine. She was young, attractive, more refined than, uh, the average young woman in musical comedy. Naturally, I told her if she ever was in Hamilton to look me up, and she did. And because she was more refined than the average young woman in musical comedy, than the average chorus girl, to put it simply, Dundee took him up, you cooperated with Mrs. Dunlap to introduce her to your most intimate friends, including your wife? Oh, Hugo, why didn't you tell me? Karen Marshall wailed. "'You see, sir, what you are doing,' Judge Marshall stormed. "'I am truly sorry if I have distressed you, Mrs. Marshall,' Dundee protested sincerely. "'But,' he shrugged and turned again to the husband, "'I understand you were Mrs. Selim's landlord. May I ask how much rent she paid?' "'The house rents for one hundred dollars a month. Furnished.' "'And did Mrs. Selim pay her rent promptly?' Dundee persisted. Since this is the 24th of May, sir, Mrs. Selim's rent for June was not yet due. Not before poor little Karen could Dundee force himself to ask what, inevitably, would have been his next question, one which could not have been evaded, as the ex-judge had evaded the other two questions. Is it not true, Judge Marshall, that Nita Lee Selim paid you no rent at all? But there were other ways to find out. "'Look here, Dundee,' a brusque voice challenged, and the detective whirled to face Polly Beale. It was like her, he thought with a slight grin, to address him as one man to another. "'Yes, Miss Beale? I'm no fool, and I don't think any of my friends here are either, though two or three of them have acted like it to-day,' the masculine-looking girl stated flatly. "'You've made it very plain that any one of us here, except the Sprague man, could have stolen Hugo's gun and silencer. Has the gun been found?' It has not, Miss Beale. Okay. The queer girl snapped her fingers. I move that you or Captain Strawn search the men for the weapon, and that I search the women. Wait. She harshly stopped a flurry of feminine protests. I'll ask you, Dundee, to search me first, yourself. I believe the technical term is frisking, isn't it? Then frisk me. Here is my handbag. I wore no coat, except this, and she pointed to the jacket of her tweed suit. As she strode toward the detective, Clive Hammond sprang after her with an oath and a sharp command. "'Shut up, Clive. I'm not married to you yet,' she retorted, but her eyes were gentler than her voice. 
his face burning with embarrassment, Dundee went through the traditional gestures of police frisking, running his hands rapidly down the girl's tall, sturdy body, slapping her pockets, and his fingers fumbled sadly as he opened her tooled leather handbag. "'Satisfied?' Polly Beale demanded, and at Dundee's miserable nod, the girl faced her friends. "'Well, come along, girls.' "'Lord, what a girl!' Dundee muttered to Strawn, as the young Amazon herded Flora Miles, Penny Crane, Karen Marshall, Carolyn Drake, Lois Dunlap, and Janet Raymond into the dining-room. Silently, and almost meekly, as if shamed into submission by Polly Beale's example, John Drake, Tracy Miles, Clive Hammond, Judge Marshall, and Dexter Sprague permitted Captain Strawn and Sergeant Turner to search them. "'How about the guest-closet and the cars?' Dundee asked of Strawn in a low voice, when the fruitless, unpleasant task was finished. "'Gone over with a fine-tooth comb long ago,' Strawn assured him gloomily, "'and not a hiding-place in or outside the house that the boys haven't poked into, including the meadow as far as any one could throw from the bedroom window.' The women were filing back into the room, some pale, some flushed, but all able to look each other in the eye again. With surprising jauntiness Polly Beale saluted Dundee. Nothing more deadly on any of us than Flora's triple-deck compact. I thank you with all my heart, Miss Beale, Dundee said sincerely, and now I think you may all go to your homes. Of course you understand, he interrupted a chorus of relieved ejaculations, that all of you will be wanted for the inquest, which will probably be held Monday. And what's more, Captain Strawn cut in, to show his authority, I want all of you to hold yourselves ready for further questioning at any time. There was a stampede for coats and hats, a rush for cars as if the house were on fire, or, Dundee reflected wryly, as if those he had tortured were afraid he would change his mind, rushing away with hatred of him in their hearts. Only Penny Crane held back, maneuvering for a chance to speak with him. "'I don't have to go with the rest, do I?' she begged in a husky whisper. "'And why not?' Dundee grinned at her, but he was glad there was no hatred in her eyes." I'm attached to the district attorney's office, too, aren't I? Right, and you've been a brick this evening. I don't know what I should have done without you. Well, I can't see that you've done much with me, she jibed. But I'd like to stick around, if you're going to do some real Sherlocking. Can't be done, Penny. I want to stay here alone for a while and mull things over. But I'd like to have a long talk with you tomorrow. Come to Sunday dinner. Mother loves murder mysteries, she suggested. Then realization swept over her her brown eyes widened, filled with terror. "'Stop thinking one of us did it. Stop, I tell you.' "'Can you stop, Penny?' he asked gently. But she fled from him, sobbing wildly for the first time that long, horrible evening. Dundee, watching from the doorway of the lighted hall, saw the chauffeur open the rear door of the Dunlap limousine, saw Penny catapult herself into Lois Dunlap's outstretched arms, "'When did the Dunlap chauffeur call for his mistress?' he asked Strawn, who stood beside him. "'About ten minutes after you arrived,' Strawn answered wearily. "'Said he dropped Mrs. Dunlap and the Selene woman about two-thirty, and had been ordered to return around six-thirty. Knows nothing, of course.' The chief of the homicide squad drew a deep breath. "'Well, Bonnie, he has nothing on me. In spite of all the palaver, I don't know nothing either.' "'You need some dinner, chief,' Dundee suggested, "'and the boys must be getting hungry, too.' "'Somebody's got to guard the house, I suppose,' Strawn gloomed. "'Not that it will do any good. "'And what about that maid, that car woman? "'Shall I lock her up on general principles?' "'No. "'I want to have another talk with her, 
and if she bucks at spending the night here, I'll take her to the Rhodes house, and turn her over to my old friend, Mother Rhodes. We haven't anything on her, you know. No, nor on anybody else, except that old fool Marshall, and we can't clap him into jail yet, Strawn agreed, his gray eyes twinkling. Take your crew on in, Chief, Dundee urged. I'll stick till midnight or longer, if you don't mind. You can arrange to have a couple of the boys to relieve me about twelve. And by the way, will you telephone me the minute you get hold of Ralph Hammond? Well, maybe not so quick as that, Strawn drawled. I'll take the first crack at that baby, my lad. Not so dumb, am I, Bonnie boy? Not so dumb. I can put two and two together as well as the next one. Pretty near as well as the district attorney's new special investigator. Although Bonnie Dundee had taken Captain Strawn's none-too-gentle parting jibe with good grace, it was a very thoughtful young detective who set about locking himself into the house in which Nita Salim had been murdered. Captain Strawn had beaten him to the job that evening by at least twenty minutes. Had the old detective stumbled upon something which Dundee, for all his spectacular thoroughness, had overlooked, or been unable to turn up because Strawn had suppressed it? What if Strawn's parting boast was not an idle one, and he really had the goods on Ralph Hammond? Had the old chief been laughing up his sleeve during the farce of playing out the death hand at bridge, and during the merciless quizzing of old Judge Marshall? But Dundee's native common sense quickly routed his gloom. Captain Strawn was too direct in his methods, too afraid of antagonizing the rich and influential, to have permitted even a special investigator from the district attorney's office to torment those twelve people needlessly. Probably Strawn, feeling a little hurt at having played second fiddle all evening, had simply wanted to get him fussed, was even now chuckling over the effect of his parting boast. Much cheered, Dundee lingered in the dining-room whose windows he had made fast against any intrusion, so that his task of guarding the house alone might be minimized. As he glanced at the table, with its silver plates heaped up with tiny sandwiches of caviar and anchovy paste, its little silver boats of olives and sweet pickles, he discovered that he was very hungry indeed. As he munched the drying sandwiches and sipped charged water, the various liquors for cocktails on the sideboard offered a temptation which he sternly resisted. Dundee's thought boiled and churned, throwing up picture after picture of Nita Selim, alive and then dead, of Penny Crane, bless her, helping him at the expense of her loyalty to lifelong friends, of Flora Miles, lying desperately, then confessing to a shameful theft, of Karen Marshall gallantly playing out the death hand, of Karen's stricken, childish face when she learned that her elderly husband had met, and at least flirted with Nita Selim, at a chorus girl's party. At that last picture Dundee flushed so that his skin prickled. Had he made a fool of himself, or was he right in his suspicion that Hugo Marshall had given Nita Selim this cottage rent-free? That point should be easily settled at any rate. Ruefully reflecting that appetizers do not make a satisfactory meal, he betook himself to the dead woman's bedroom. Yes, his memory had served him well. Here was her desk, a small feminine affair of rosewood, set in the corner of the room nearest the porch door. The desk was not locked. As Dundee let down the slanting lid, whose polish was marred with many fingerprints, he saw that its contents were in a hopeless jumble. So Strawn had beaten him to this, too. Had he found an all-important clue in one of the many little pigeonholes and drawers 
stuffing it into his pocket just before a bumptious young special investigator had arrived? But Dundee's returning gloom was instantly dispelled. Here was Nita's checkbook, a flutter of filled-in stubs attached to only one remaining blank check. So Nita had banked with the Hamilton National Bank, of which John C. Drake, who apparently hated his fattish, fussy wife, was a vice-president. Another tiny fact to be tucked away. She had opened her account, apparently, on April 21, the day of her arrival in Hamilton, the guest and employee of Mrs. Peter Dunlap. Probably Lois Dunlap had advanced her the two hundred dollars as first payment for her prospective work in organizing a little theater movement in Hamilton. Turning rapidly through stubs, Dundee stopped twice, whistling softly with amazement each time. For on April 28th, and again on May 5th, Nita Salim had deposited five thousand dollars. Where had she gotten the money? Were the sums transfers from accounts in New York banks? but it was hardly likely that a little Broadway hanger-on had so much hard cash on deposit. Then where had she gotten it? Five thousand dollars at a time, here in Hamilton. Blackmail. Hastily but thoroughly, Dundee ran through the remaining check-stubs. No record at all of a check for rent made out to Judge Hugo Marshall. But there was a stub that interested him. Check number seventeen, Nita had spent her money lavishly, was filled in as follows, in Nita's pretty backhand. Number seventeen, nine thousand dollars, May nine, nineteen thirty, to trust department, for investment. Had John C. Drake, who, as vice president in charge of trusts and investments, had doubtless handled the check, wondered at all where the nine thousand dollars had come from? One other revelation came out of the twenty-three filled-in stubs. On every Monday, Nita Salim had drawn a check for forty dollars to her maid, Lydia Carr. Again Dundee whistled. Forty dollars a week was, he wagered to himself, more money than any other maid in Hamilton was lucky enough to receive. Nita in a new light, an over-generous Nita. Or was Nita herself paying blackmail on a small scale? He reached into a pigeonhole whose contents, a thick packet of unused envelopes, had not been disturbed by Strong and was about to remove an envelope in which to place the all-important check-book, when he noticed something slightly peculiar. An envelope in the middle of the packet looked rather thicker than an empty case should. But it was not empty, and across the face of the expensive, cream-colored linen paper was written, in that same pretty, very legible backhand, to be opened in case of my death, Juanita Lee Selim. His heart hammering painfully, and his fingers trembling, Dundee drew out the two close-written sheets of creamy note-paper. After all, who had better right than he to open it? Was he not the representative of the district attorney? And he hadn't damaged the envelope. It had opened very easily, indeed. Its flap had yielded instantly to his thumbnail. Wait! It had been too easy. Before unfolding the letter, or whatever it was, Dundee examined the flap of the envelope. Yes, he was not the first to open it since its original sealing. God grant he hadn't destroyed any tell-tale fingerprints in his criminal haste to learn any secret that Nita Salim had recorded here. Perhaps Nita herself had unsealed the letter to make an addition or correction. Well, whatever damage had been done was done now, and he might as well read. Five minutes later Bonnie Dundee was racing through the dining-room, pushing open the swinging door that led into the butler's pantry. Where the devil were the steps that led down into the basement? 
a precious minute was lost before he discovered that a door in the dark back hall opened upon the steep steps. An unshaded light, dangling from the ceiling, revealed the furnace in one corner of the big basement, laundry equipment in another. He plunged on. That must be the maid's room, behind that closed door. God! What if she'd escaped while he had been munching caviar and anchovy sandwiches? A fine guard he'd have been. And he wasn't as if he hadn't had a dim suspicion of the truth. The knob turned easily. He flung open the door, and then his knees nearly gave way, so tremendous was his relief. For there, on the thin mattress of a white enameled iron bed, lay the woman he so ardently desired to see. She had apparently been asleep, and the noise he had made had startled her into panicky wakefulness. Instinctively her hand flew to the ruined left side of her face, that hideous expanse of livid flesh, scarred and ridged so that it did not look human. What? Who? Lydia Carr gasped, struggling into a sitting position, only to fall back as nausea swept over her. You remember me? Dundee panted. Dundee of the district attorney's office? I questioned you this afternoon. The woman closed the single eye that had escaped the accident which had marred her face so hideously. I remember. I'm sick. I told you all I know. Lydia, why didn't you tell me that it was your mistress, Mrs. Selim, who did that? Dundee demanded sternly, pointing to the woman's sightless left eye and ruined cheek. End of chapter 11